don't feel so good. Hello and welcome back to The Poison Cast, a podcast dedicated to explaining the deadly science behind toxins, venoms, and chemicals. My name is Scott Barnett. I am a fourth-year PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada School of Medicine. As one subscriber pointed out, if you tuned into this podcast to hear about Brett Michaels and bandanas and the band Poison, you are going to be monumentally disappointed if you continue on. But if you've ever wondered just how poisons and toxins and venoms actually kill you, well, my friend, welcome. Rattlesnake bites are the leading cause of snake bite injuries in North America. This year alone, in the United States, approximately 7,500 people will be bitten by venomous snakes. And many of those snakes will be from what is the most iconic of American snakes, the aptly named rattlesnake. Those who've listened to all of my podcasts may be a little miffed that with just seven episodes under our belt, we've already circled around to cover another snake. But what I can assure you is that despite the fact that all venomous snakes slither and bite, the venom the venom from, we'll say, the black mamba and the rattlesnake are as unique and different as Andre the Giant is from Webster. Hmm. If you're under 30... Those references may be lost in you. For the more youthful of our listeners, uh, I'll throw in an SAT analogy. Black Mamba Venom is to Rattlesnake Venom as Taylor Swift is to Lil Wayne, if I'm saying that right. That is to say they're both humans, they both sing, but that's where the similarities end. So don't worry if you've already heard the Black Mamba one. This one's going to be very unique here. So the Rattlesnake, or in herpetology speak, Cortalis Artox, which is a fun name to say, it gets its name from, I hope you are sitting down for this, from its rattler. The scientific name Cortalis is derived from the Greek, and it means castanet. So that's a good fun fact to know. Uh, I went to the interwebs, and I tried to find some sort of list of nicknames that the rattlesnake has that are commonly used, but as it turns out, the word rattlesnake is not only inherently descriptive, but it also conjures up a sufficient amount of fear in one's mind's eye that I don't think anyone figured that it needed a bunch of nicknames, so they're not out there. It's like having a friend named Willie Stroker, which is a real name on a real birth certificate. I didn't make that up. I don't think old Willie Stroker had a bunch of nicknames growing up. His regular name was more creative than any bully could have figured out or come up with, so <laughs> they just kept Willie Stroker. With that being said, I don't want to leave the listeners of this podcast as disappointed as I was when looking for rattlesnake nicknames, so I've made up a few of my own. And you may feel free to use these and disseminate them at your leisure. Without further ado, my nicknames for the rattlesnake are Noisy Fangs, Loud Biter, Wake and Shake, Marionette of Death, Arizona Hissing Stick, and my personal favorites, the Scream Viper or the Desert Freezer. The last one being delightfully ironic as it has the word desert in it, which is hot, and the word freezer, which is cold, as in you'll feel cold as you die in the hot desert or that you'll stop motionless, i.e. freeze with fear when you when you see the snake. Um, for good measure, I'm also going to create a unique noise that you may use uh, in lieu of a proper name. We'll say that noise is, ah! <laughs> what am I doing? Now, if I had the ability to travel through space and time, I imagine I would find a lot of people with perplexed looks on their face reaching for whatever dial stops my voice from reaching their ears about now. But I beg you to wait. We are going to get into the real reason you turned into this podcast, the macabre and delightful science behind rattlesnake venom. 
First, though, and I'm not messing with you here, I wanted to do just a minute or so on the history of rattlesnakes. It's pretty cool. As you probably guessed, the rattlesnake was not brought over by the Puritans during their journey from Europe, right? In fact, when the early colonists arrived in the New World from England, one of the first things to greet them was the eastern diamondback rattlesnake. Coming from an island nation of Great Britain where the only snake they had around was the reclusive and passive adder, it may not come as a surprise that the rattlesnake terrified the colonists. It became such a part of the lore of the region that the statesman Christopher Gadsden drew what, in my humble opinion, is a rather inept and childlike version of a rattlesnake, but a rattlesnake nonetheless during the American Revolution, and it has become a symbol of independence, and it can still be found on flags all over the country, mainly in the South, though, with the saying that we've all heard, don't tread on me beneath it. There's a whole history behind that. Lots of cool books and Benjamin Franklin's involved and all that sort of fun stuff, but we are not a history podcast. Speaking of those who learned of the rattlesnake long before you or I or the Puritans, the Native Americans have a very long and respectful, yet understandably distrustful past with the rattlesnake. It may, no come, it may come as no surprise to you that the rattlesnake tends to be viewed negatively in Native American cultures. Uh, it's been frequently associated with violence and revenge, as a matter of fact. In some tribes, rattlesnakes uh, were viewed as both powerful and dangerous, which makes sense. And they were often associated with witchcraft, which is very interesting to me. In legends, rattlesnakes sometimes even appear as like a divine punishment that wreaked vengeance or or on sinful people or their family. So, so I mean, all of this makes sense if you've ever seen a rattlesnake, which I'm sure you all have. It's very easy to vilify <laughs> this animal here. Now, Puritans and Native Americans aside, let's face some facts here. Snakes are really scary, right? Approximately 15% of the 3,000 species of snakes, which would be, what is that, three, 450 species of snakes worldwide are venomous. And this makes sense if you think about it. If you don't have hands, feet, or a jaw that can exert a couple thousand pounds of force per square inch, you're probably not much of a threat to the things you want to eat. I mean, imagine how imposing you'd be if you were duct taped into a sleeping bag and told, you know, to go assault someone. I, I don't think you'd have a lot of luck there. The rattlesnake is part of the pit viper family, of which there are 151 snakes within this family. So the pit in pit viper are the heat sensing organs, those holes you see in the face, uh, and they track infrared signatures from prey. And the viper part of pit viper simply encompasses a family of snakes called the vipers here, of which the pit vipers are a subclassification, if that makes sense. In other words, if you, um, let's see, uh, you can be a viper without having heat sensing capabilities, right? But only a pit viper has the heat sensing capabilities. Being a regular old viper is analogous to like ordering a custom car and not getting the wheel and fender package upgrade. Or if you're a military nerd like me, a more apt analogy is like being an F-18 without FLIR. If that doesn't make sense to you, don't worry. So if we move on from the whole pit viper family into the genus level of classification, we get to the actual rattlesnakes. And there are, there are 32 distinct species of rattlesnakes with the eastern and western diamond rattlesnake being the most fatalities that are accounted for here. And of those 32 species of rattlesnake, moving forward, we're really just going to be focusing on the western diamondback rattlesnake because, uh, well, for reasons that are going to become clear here. 
So as I mentioned at the top of the show, rattlesnake venom is very different than black mamba venom. Black mamba venom contains a single neurotoxin that binds to just the tiniest portion of the neuron in your brain and it completely shuts it down. Death follows in quick order. With the rattlesnake, we are introduced to a class of toxin that we've never talked about yet on the podcast. It is called a hemotoxin, heme as in blood and toxin as in uh, toxin. So a hemotoxin is a toxin that acts by lysing or breaking apart erythrocytes, which is a fancy name for a red blood cell. This can have a lot of downstream consequences, one of which is the eventual necrosis of the bite region. If you do a Google image of a search image for rattlesnake bite, and I warn you, this is not for the faint of heart, you're going to see a bunch of dead and dying and inflamed tissue, which if untreated can lead to substantial secondary infections and might be another vector towards death uh, if if it was untreated, but uh, not really the primary way it kills you. In addition to hemotoxins, the rattlesnake venom contains a whole cocktail of other damaging chemicals, specifically uh, different proteins and enzymes here that are created by the snake. Many of the toxins help with the general breakdown of tissue so that you may be more like your the prey it's biting may be more easily digested. Interestingly, many of the components of the venom are proteins that mimic the exact same proteins that we already have occurring in our blood here that produce blood clotting. These are like prothrombin, pro, um, uh, thrombin itself, and these are called procoagulants. These coagulants induce enzymes to break up your red cells, and they end up getting kind of clumped up together, and they localize in your kidneys where they get stuck, not unlike a hair clog in the drain. And this can cause damage to kidneys, but more on that in a bit here. So just how much venom would it take to kill you from the rattlesnake? It's a good question to ask. It varies widely depending on the, the species of rattlesnake, but again, we're talking about the western diamondback here. It's a ballpark thing, but just with the western diamondback alone, the LD50, which we've talked about a lot in the past, won't go into it, but it's it's the lethal dose, uh, 50%. It's just uh, about how much it's going to take to kill you. The value is about 2.7 milligrams per Per kilogram, uh, if the snake hits a vein or an artery, vein or artery, and it's about ten times that if you hit the kind of thick, muscly part of your leg or arm or wherever it's biting, this is not really that deadly when you compare it to other toxins we've discussed on the show, or even with the venomous snake community as a whole. It's just it's not that that deadly to make a booze analogy because. Who doesn't want to make a booze analogy? The rattlesnake is like Michelob light, and a black mamba is like whiskey. If you're into numbers, the black mamba venom is more than 10 times more potent than even the the diamondback the poison here, and that will become clear why. So with that being said, because of it, it also has large venom glands. So to help kind of come over this fact it's not quite as deadly it typically will uh, use its specialized stabby needles which some people call fangs um, to inject quite a bit more venom than typical snake the average venom yield per bite is between 250 and 350 milligrams with a maximum of seven to 800 milligrams. So I've racked my brain to want to find a good way to visualize 250 milligrams worth of snake venom. The best my limited creativity could come up with is that if you were to take a drinking straw, like from uh, a soda, an average rattlesnake bite would fill up about the first half inch of that straw. And it can be up to three times that amount. So an inch and a half worth of it. That's a pretty hefty dose of venom to to be injected into. Now, let me play critical scientist here for just one second. Um, 
and look at some of those numbers here, especially with the dosing. You know, if we go with the low number of venom per bite, which was 250 milligrams, that half inch in the drinking straw, and we convert it, that means that the rattlesnake bite would pack enough punch to kill roughly a 200-pound man or woman, and that's on the low end of the bite dosage, right? However, we know that the mortality rate uh, of untreated bites is somewhere between 10 and 20%. That, to me, means one of three things. Either rattlesnakes are only biting morbidly obese people, which I suppose could be considered. Uh, They don't inject as much venom as they say they're injecting. Or three, that this LD50, the actual potency of the toxins, um, might be a little bit off here. Considering we milk these snakes all the time, I think we have some really good statistics as to exactly how much venom these are dosing when they bite something. Um, I'm guessing, though, that the LD50 needs a little tweaking, and this might be because we can inject these venoms in different organisms like like mice and, and whatnot, but, the, <laughs> but we can't ethically inject into humans so the potency of the venom may be much higher for its specified target which is in this case a mouse and not nearly as potent in a human Um, so that may account for some of the discrepancies here but the big takeaway is here it puts a bunch of venom into you and untreated the mortality is 10 to 20 percent i think that's probably pretty reasonable here so why is it so deadly what causes the deadliness of the rattlesnake well even though the rattlesnake venom um uh is even though it's one one hundredth as strong as the black mamba, it injects between one and two hundred times the lethal dose of venom it needs for what its favorite prey is, the mouse. So it's injecting, it's not meant to kill you or I, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, but it does inject a couple hundred times what it needs to kill its to kill the mouse. And why would it inject so much poison? Well, mice are fast, they can move far away fairly quickly and because the pit vipers track by heat you don't want you know your dinner running a few hundred yards away crawling into a rock before it dies and making it very hard to find right the advantage of um, if you go back to the black mama the advantage of having a single toxin that is highly specific uh, like the neurotoxin from the black mamba is that it can kill you very very quickly the bad news is that it's easy for prey to create a resistance when you have a highly specific venom with as in with the black mamba think like honey badgers they can get bitten by a cobra which would just which would kill an elephant and they just kind of get lethargic and then They wake up 20 minutes later and they're good to go. It's because they've developed a mutation in the part of the neuron where that the cobra venom will bind to, and now they're immune to it. Uh, If you're creating venom, you don't want your animals to be able to develop immunities to it because it's going to be harder to kill and eat them. The western diamond, western diamondback uh, rattlesnake, on the other hand, has tons of toxins which break down uh, not only animal tissue but if you think about the fact that it has dozens of toxins, it's practically impossible for the prey to create mutations to all of these toxins to thwart the rattlesnake. You know, so why have these two animals evolved so differently, uh, both having venom and both being snakes? It's anyone's guess, but if I had to throw my opinion into the ring, I'd say that it's because the rattlesnake can follow the heat signature uh, of the animal it's bitten, um, and this 
is aided by the fact that rattlesnakes primarily hunt at night, which means there's going to be a greater contrast between the heat signature and the ground. So they're able to track it over a fairly good distance. All these pit vipers can, whereas uh, the black mamba isn't able to track via heat. And the desert's a pretty wide open place. I mean, the animal can get fairly far, but it's less likely that the prey is going to slip into the dense bushes of the jungle and get away. And so if you're a black mamba, you want that animal to die almost instantly because there's a very good likelihood that it's going to be able to get away and you won't be able to track it. So um, all this means is that there's no need to develop a very quick acting venom if you're a rattlesnake, though this is all complete speculation. I need to to tell you that. A question people often ask is, uh, you know, if snakes are immune to their own venom. So I thought I would address that real quick. The answer is sometimes like um, if you have a cobra uh, and its venom is highly specific for a tiny protein such as the neuron, you know, we've talked about that a bunch. Those snakes generally have evolved some uh, uh, resistance to their own venom because it's very easy for them to do. And if you accidentally are mating and you get bit by that snake or if you accidentally bite yourself while you're trying to you know, kill a mouse, it's good that you're not going to kill yourself with your own venom here. Um, this is not the case with a rattlesnake at all. A rattlesnake, if it bit itself, would almost certainly die because it contains so many toxins that it would be very hard for uh, for it to be immune to all of them at one time. So... so um, why doesn't the rattlesnake get poisoned when it eats the mouse it just killed by injecting a lot of poison into it? It's a great question if you were thinking it. The answer really is two reasons. So one, um, most of the venom, uh, most of the venom, or I should say the proteins in the venom from the rattlesnake, they uh, they attack the blood um, and or the muscle. And the lining of the intestinal tract of the rattlesnake contains little of either of these. So even if that toxin's coming in, in contact with the with the intestinal lining, it's not going to act on a, a bunch. Um, on top of that, uh, the venoms have broken down significantly by the time the rattlesnake's actually consuming and breaking down its meal because they're doing their job and being used up in the mouse itself. And then I should say a third part here is that the... Uh, in order to break down a whole organism like a mouse, that intestinal tract of the snake has to be highly acidic in order to break down and digest everything. Most pro- most toxins that are protein-based that are actually made of, uh, of, of proteins from the animal, they break down and be- – or I shouldn't say they break down. They become uh, inactive. They, they change their shape. They, it's called a conformational shift, and they're unable to – to maintain their toxicity in a very in a very strong change of pH, so all that together means that the rattlesnake really isn't getting a very high dose of its own poison when it eats its food. So let's let's shift gears a little bit here and say, what happens if you are the hapless victim of a dastardly and unprovoked attack by a Western Diamondback rattlesnake? What is going to happen to you? Well, it probably comes as no surprise that the rattlesnake rarely bites unless provoked or threatened. It's not like they get snake rabies then go on some sort of biting rampage or that the snake was raised without a father and bites people so he can express his insecurities. Most, but not all rattlesnake bites occur because you are about to step on them or because you've just polished off a case of, you know, beer and you're trying to show off to your D-bag buddies. Let's be realistic here. I read a really funny paper on this, by the way. (laughs) about rattlesnake bites and it said that and i quote this is from the paper alcohol intoxication of the victim is a factor in many envenomations uh yes i think that can probably safely be said well if you're going to get bit there's a 90 something percent chance you're going to be bitten on the lower leg or the hand Um, as you might have guessed if you've been bitten on the hand it's probably because you've done something to earn that bite 
And it may come as no surprise that an overwhelming majority of all rattlesnake bite victims are males between the age of 17 and 27. True fact, uh, actually, in the literature. Uh, judgments aside, though, other than the obvious indications that you've been bitten by this snake at the point, uh, aka, you know, two conspicuous holes in your skin, swelling, bleeding, those are the obvious quick ones. Typically, severe symptoms don't materialize for 30 to 60 minutes for most pit viper envenomations. And this has to do with the fact that these heme toxins, these hemotoxins, take a while to break down your blood cells, uh, take a while to do any significant damage with, to your blood or to your muscle here. So that gives you plenty of time to get treatment, which, which will make sense here in a minute. So early systematic manifestations at this 30, 60 minutes later, you get uh, nausea, vomiting, you get a, um, you see, you get tingling, they say, in the fingertips, toes. You get uh, myokemia, which is swelling. You get lethargy, weakness. This is an interesting one. Victims may describe a rubbery or minty or metallic taste after the envenomation by some species of rattlesnakes. Uh, I, I need to look into that more because that's a very interesting uh, side effect there. So more severe systematic uh, systemic effects include hypotension, which is a real drop in your blood pressure, rapid breathing, severe tachycardia, you know, your heart beating irregularly, and uh, bites by rattlesnakes may result in consumptive uh, coagulopathy and a low platelet count, which means that this is where those blood cells are, red blood cells that are supposed to be carrying your oxygen to keep you alive. They start breaking down, they're coagulating, and then they're, they're getting caught up uh, in, in your kidneys here. So if you, speaking of the kidneys, if you're going to die from a bite, if you're one of those 10 to 20% of people who go untreated and they end up dying from a rattlesnake bite, it's because these platelets have clogged up your kidneys. Um, or the other reason is because pit viper venom increases the permeability of the capillary of the capillary membranes. So what this does is it results in a loss of electrolytes, albumin, which is important to your blood, uh, and the red blood cells, they completely encapsulate the envenomated site, and you start losing a lot of these key factors, um, and you get, you get massive swelling, and you can just go into shock, and you can die. This go all circles back to that hypotension, where where you, you're you just don't have enough blood volume because your 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 capillaries have become so leaky that you you pass out and, and you'll eventually die here. The, there is good news though. After all this bad news, uh, the good news is that if you live in North America and you're one of the 7,500 unfortunate people to get bitten by a venomous snake this year, only six of you are going to die. That is in stark contrast to most other nations with venomous snakes a lot of it has to do with we have really good access to medicine and there are snakes in america just aren't nearly as deadly as in we'll say africa or the asian subcontinent um to put this in perspective six people dying of the 7500 bite that basically means you have a one in 1000 chance of dying if you're bit right uh, to put that in perspective vending machines they kill 14 people every year in America. Ants kill 30 people. And just for fun, I'll mention that autoerotic asphyxiation kills 600 people annually. That means two people a day are dying from autoerotic asphyxiation. That's a very strange fact, but just put that in your pocket and keep it for later. If you do get yourself to a hospital, they're going to give you an anti-venom. We've talked about anti-venom in the past, but I'll cover it ever so briefly if you haven't heard it on the other shows here. Anti-venoms are really cool, miraculous, amazing ways to use to use science, right? The way you make an anti-venom uh, for really any toxin, any protein, any anything that's made by another animal is that you take a small amount of that toxin and you inject it into an animal. 
So let's just say in this case, you, you could do it to a horse. You get a very small amount of the rattlesnake venom. You inject it into a horse, not enough to hurt the horse. The horse body identifies this as a very bad thing it needs to get rid of, and it creates antibodies. Now, what an antibody does is, is twofold. One, it will bind to that snake venom, and uh, it will prevent it basically just by wrapping its arms around that snake venom. It will prevent that snake venom from prevent that snake venom from going where it needs to do to cause damage here. So it's it's preventing it from doing what it needs to do. The other thing the the uh, antibody does is that it binds to it and it kind of sends up a flag and it says, "Hey, you see me grabbing onto this piece of venom here." I need like a macrophage. I need a white blood cell to come along and eat us up and destroy us because this is a bad thing here and we need to get rid of it. So it's kind of a twofold attack. So if you inject that venom into the horse or whatever animal you want to do, you can get it to create a whole bunch of antibodies. Then you can take that horse serum, the 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 fraction of the blood that's not the blood itself, and you can isolate out just those antibodies. You put those antibodies in a vial, you put them in a refrigerator so that they don't break down, and then you inject those antibodies into a person who just got bit by the snake. Now, all of those antibodies that would normally take days to form naturally in your body, you've got a nice strong dose of them, and they're just gonna go throughout your body, they're gonna bind up all that snake venom, and then they're going to make it render it useless and therefore you will you will survive your your bite there and this typically works extremely well anti-venoms are are a wonderful piece of science so um that's that for the anti-venoms i'm going to end tier one by saying that even though you'll probably survive a rattlesnake bite and even though you'll probably be okay if you go around playing with them don't be a dick and go messing with them. <laughs> Sorry for the strong language. It's easy to vilify or not care about snakes because they aren't furry or they don't have a cute face. But uh, the fact is they're just trying to get by. So so be cool. And uh, with that, we'll end tier one. I want to thank you for listening to the Poison Cast. We are moving into two, tier two at this point, which is going to be short. Um, but if you want to learn more about the molecular bio- biology or toxicology of rattlesnake venom, then go ahead and stick around. I can't wait to talk about it. Also, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, people have been slipping off. Please rate us on iTunes. Uh, I know it seems like such a trivial and, and self-serving sort of thing, but the fact is is that people find us when you rate us. They bump us up on the ratings, and it helps all this work I put into this be found by other people. And on that same note, you know, I always hear on other podcasts, I say, tell a friend. And I'm always like, nobody's telling a friend. But please tell a friend. If you're the type of person that tells a friend, please do. It would help me a lot. So thanks, guys. And we'll move into tier two now. All right. Are you ready to get your super nerd on? This is tier two. I always like to talk about the funky molecular biology, all the fun stuff, as much as I do in the first section. I do want to start out by saying that I pulled a lot of what I found here from a couple major sources here. And of course, uh, being a budding young scientist, I would like to to quote those sources. One is the New England Journal of Medicine's Bite and Bites of Venomous Snakes. Uh, you can find that online. It's a very, very good resource. Also, uh, another big one I found was the Journal of Proteome Research, exploring the venom proteome of the Western diamond-backed rattlesnake. Cortalis artox via snake venomics, venomics, we'll go with that, and uh, combinatorial peptide ligand library approaches. This one was actually pretty important because, um, well, as I mentioned in tier one, there are a whole bunch of toxins within the Western diamondback rattlesnake venom, right? More than two dozen have been identified, and almost every single piece of literature I found didn't go any deeper than that to say as well, you know, there's a bunch of toxins, uh, and they do a bunch of bad stuff, so (laughs) something you need to worry about. But um, 
this journal Proteome Research, the paper I just mentioned, actually really went into it uh, in depth, and they were they were very cool here. So what I wanted to do for tier two, rather than kind of break it down in a similar fashion as I do normally, I just wanted to talk about a few of the toxins within the venom because what they do is pretty unique and pretty interesting and um, and they often kind of mimic what is already in your body but then they kick it up a notch and they put a lot more in you and it turns out when you put a lot of things in you that typically do a good thing they can turn out to do bad things so uh, so what are these things we're talking about one of them is c-type lectin protein and the primary uh, the primary purpose of this c-type lectin proteins are anti-angiogenics so uh, it's something that's angiogenic means it promotes blood vessel growth. And this is really important if you're, let's say you were injured in some way, you want new blood vessel growth to go there. On a side note, uh, cancers are famous for these angiogenic properties. Um, you typically look for these angiogenic properties in people's blood if you think they have cancer because in order for a cancer to survive in your body, it needs to have lots of blood supply. In order for it to get lots of blood supply, it needs to have lots of blood vessels. So it puts a lot of these pro-angiogenic um, angiogenic properties uh, or peptides into your body to grow blood vessels. But in any case, that has nothing to do with snake bites. Uh, this has anti-angiogenic, so it's stopping your body from healing itself because if it gets injured, it's like, I might want to grow some new blood vessels to fix me, and the snake venom's like, nah, it's not going to happen. Uh, another really important one here uh, in the snake venom is called PLA2 molecules. These are phospholipase uh, type 2 molecules here. So phospholipases, they break down molecules within the membrane of your cell. Uh, your cell membrane cons consists of a lot of different molecules, but primarily it's a thin layer of amphiphatic phospholipids. Uh, amphiphatic just means that it's got kind of a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic component here. The hydrophobics all come together and they kind of nestle in the middle of your, your, your cell membrane, which is dual layer. And then the outside has to be touching the blood and the water. And so it actually has a uh, hydro portion that likes to bind to the water side of it. So anyways, it breaks down those specific types of molecules. Um, now, oh, another side note, I'm sorry, I got, I love talking about this stuff. Your cell membrane also consists of a lot of different uh, or phospholipids and lipids in general. Uh, one of the primary ones that is uh, cholesterol. Uh, fun fact, cholesterol starts out uh, as the starting point of all hormones in your body. So they're very important. Everyone talks about lower your cholesterol. And yes, if you get a lot too much cholesterol, it has other effects, but it's really important to the normal homeostasis of your body. Not only would you not have um, hormones if it wasn't for cholesterol, they also play a really important role in cell membrane fluidity. If you have the right proportion of cholesterol, which varies from cell type to cell type, but if you have the right proportion, you have an appropriate fluidity within that cell membrane, things move around. When those numbers get too low, the cell membrane gets stiff and a whole bunch of bad things happen, causes certain, uh, certain types of disease states. But that has nothing to do with phospholipase here, so back to that. So the phospholipase, it will break down uh, a specific component of the cell called these phospholipases, right? While there are a lot of uh, very valid reasons to have these phospholipases around, uh, I think specifically within smooth muscle and phospholipase is critical to, to contraction within the smooth muscle. Um, when you have too much of it, and especially in these venom, these venom isoforms, they basically promote inflammation in mammals. Uh, they do this by catalyzing the first step of the arachidonic acid pathway, and they break down the phospholipids. Um, another tangent but related to this is that if you ever take an aspirin, it's a COX-2 inhibitor. It's a cyclooxygenase type 2 inhibitor, and it deals with this arachidonic acid pathway. You're preventing inflammation by taking aspirin uh, by 
arachidonic acid via COX-2 will turn into um, prostaglandins. Uh, these deal with inflammation. And anyways, this phospholipase will work within this. this uh, when you have too much of it, especially in these venoms, it will work to promote inflammation rather than reduce it like, like, a, like an aspirin would. Okay, uh, another really important uh, component of the venom are snake venom metalloproteinases. And I got this. I'm actually going to read it verbatim from an abstract because this guy did it so well. His name was Gutierrez, and the name of the paper, if you're interested, is called Snake Venom Metalloproteinases, Their Role in the Pathogenesis of Local Tissue Damage. And this is what it says from his paper, and it's really good. Metalloproteinases induce hemorrhage by directly affecting mostly capillary blood vessels. It is suggested that hemorrhagic enzymes cleave in a highly selective fashion key peptide bonds at the basement membrane of components, thereby, thereby affecting the interaction between basement membrane and endothelial cells. Endothelial are really important because these are what line all your blood vessels. That's me on the side, by the way. As a consequence, these cells undergo a series of morphological and functional alterations in vivo, probably associated with biophysical heterodynamic factors such as tangential fluid shear stress. Eventually, here, this is an important part, gaps form in the endothelial cells through which uh, extravasation occurs. This means that what was inside your blood vessels goes outside your blood vessels. That's extra uh, extravasation, excuse me. Um, in addition to hemorrhagic, uh, excuse me, in addition to hemorrhage, venom metalloproteinases induce skeletal muscle damage, myonecrosis, that means your muscles are dying, uh, which seems to be secondary to ischema uh, that induces in muscles, tissues, uh, blah, 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 goes on and on and on. Um, there's also microvessel, microvessel damage. So, so these metalloproteinases do, in the snake venom, do a whole bunch of bad stuff. Again, as I should mention, metalloproteinases do a really, a whole bunch of important things in the body. I study preterm labor in my lab, and metalloproteinases actually help induce cervical ripening, which uh, is important to your uh, to the delivery of the baby. You can't have a baby unless your cervical ripens. So that's a medical term in case you're wondering. Uh, what else we got? Ooh, these ones are good. Okay. So uh, peroxyrhodoxins, right? That's an interesting term here. But what they do is they act in a redox process leading to the structural formation and diversification of these different toxins. Um, redox, which stands for reduction oxidation, basically controls a lot in your body. Your body. It's so important. It's as important as almost any other cycle, and it happens just continually throughout your body. Uh, at the essence of a redox reaction is the exchange of electrons, right? If you remember from chemistry, Leo Ger, if you ever learned that, lose electrons, oxidize, gain electrons, reduce, right? And these are like Lewis acid, Lewis base reactions. If you remember Lewis base, Lewis base is when any species um, that donates a pair, it will donate a pair of electrons to a Lewis acid, and the Lewis acid is reversed. So it's all about dodon. Uh, uh, Proton, excuse me, electron, protons, electrons, raw science. It's all about electron donating and, and taking. Um, in the end, peroxy uh, redoxins, they're ubiquitous and they are part of an antioxidant enzyme that controls cytokine, cytokine induced peroxide levels. This is really important because this also goes to downstream inflammation here. Um, what it does is peroxyredoxin reduces hydrogen peroxide, which is a natural byproduct of a whole host of reactions that are involved in the breakdown of water and other hydroxyl containing molecules in the body. Uh, and it, it, it works in there and it, it can change the level of cytokine in your body and you can get a lot of inflammation. So if you see, you're starting to see a trend here and um, that all of these 
part of the these these I should say subcomponents of the venom. All these these peptides they are either uh, preventing muscles from repairing themselves. They are causing leakage uh, so that you get increased inflammation, and they're just causing overall damage here. This is in addition to what we talked about in tier one, which is one of the primary components of the venom is, is of course, uh, a hemotoxin, which will destroy your red blood cells. So one last fun fact about the peroxyridoxins uh, is that in mice knockout models where they take the 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 gene that makes the peroxyridoxins out of the mice they develop severe hemolytic anemia so so again this goes back to the function of the red blood cell it's very very important here uh, so that's uh, those are the key ones I'm going to cover in here and something I didn't mention in tier one was that there is a huge wide variation in the type of toxins and lethality within the different rattlesnakes here one of the biggest outliers within the rattlesnake uh, genus is that the Mojave rattlesnake has by far a significantly more important to toxin than than anything uh, than any of the other rattlesnakes here. And this, the reason it is is that it actually has a neurotoxin, which none of the other rattlesnakes, as far as I could find at least, do not have. As a matter of fact, it's so toxic uh, that the Mojave rattlesnake has an LD50 of 0.03 mg per kilogram, which means it would take about 2 milligrams to kill a full-grown adult, which is very capable of doing. It's a very nasty bite here. If you compare that to the Western Diamondback, which has 0.92 mg per kilogram LD50, these are both intravenous, by the way, uh, administrations, that means that the Mojave rattlesnake is 30 times more deadly than the Western Diamondback. So it's certainly something to consider. Um, and as again, that was for the IV here. Now, intramuscular, which is a much more realistic metric to determine the, you know, the lethality of a snake because the chances of a snake hitting an actual artery is pretty low, but they're certainly going to get in the muscle. Uh, it still becomes clear that the Western Diamondback rattlesnake is really not that lethal when it comes to snakes, as, as feared as it is. The Mojave LD50 for intramuscular is 0.7 mg per kilogram, and it's 19 mg per kilogram for the Western Diamondback rattlesnake. So it is just significantly less toxic. And 19 mg per mil, the reason only 10% of people die from untreated western diamondback rattlesnakes is because you have to get a lot a lot of toxin in there in order for the the rattlesnake to kill you here you're it's going to be miserable for days weeks or even months afterward as you heal i'm not saying it's a pleasant experience you should go out and seek it's just the lethality is limited um I, you know what? I think we're going to end it there. So I hope you learned a little bit in tier two here. I know I went kind of fast here. Uh, might be good for a re-listen if you want to learn a little bit more. But uh, the Western Diamondback, Diamondback Rattlesnake is by far the most uh, complex of the organisms we covered this far. So uh, I hope I went into an appropriate level of depth where you learned uh, depth. Death would be appropriate too. Depth where you learned a little bit something this week. Uh, stay tuned for next week. I can't wait. Uh, I'm not even sure what we're going to talk about next. I've got some suggestions from people, and I certainly want to cover those. So we will see you next time.